Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week's podcast is about the NATO Summit in Vilnius. All eyes were on Lithuania's capital this week as leaders from NATO's 31, soon to be 32 members, descended on Vilnius for the organization's annual summit. As the NATO summits go, this one was packed with drama. So many questions remained unresolved until the very last minute. Would Turkey finally greenlight Sweden's accession? What sort of security guarantees would Ukraine get? To what extent would the final communique, the subject of frantic last minute negotiations, reflect? Kiev's desire for NATO membership. With the summit now over, a lot of these questions have been answered. And we have an all-star cast to help us make sense of what actually happened. Leading the cast, we have Alex Stubb, the former Prime Minister, Foreign Minister, Finance Minister of Finland, who since 2020 has been the Director of the School of Transnational Governance at European University Institute, who's also most importantly, an ECFR board and council member. Also uh, down the line, uh, who's uh, just returning from from Vilnius, we have Luca Fries, who is uh, a co-chair of ECFR and served as Danish climate minister, is also currently the director of of Think Tank uh, Europa in Copenhagen. And also returning from Vilnius, we have Camille Grand, who's a distinguished policy fellow at ECFR. But this is not the first NATO summit he's been to because before joining ECFR, he was Assistant Secretary General for Defence Investment at NATO and uh, has played quite an important part in a lot of the big debates which were being discussed by leaders in Vilnius. So welcome all to to the podcast. Why don't we start with a sort of overview of of what happened on those big questions before we kind of go through each of them in detail. Kemi, you played quite an important part in preparing lots of uh, of NATO uh, meetings and have been across lots of different points of the agenda. Do you want to just briefly explain why this summit was important and and what the main takeaways are? Thank you, Mark. Well, I mean, at first sight, the Vilnius summit could have been just a picture opportunity of a, a display of uh, solidarity with Ukraine. Uh, there has been a very important summit only a year ago in Madrid. There is another one coming in Washington for the 75th anniversary of NATO uh, in exactly a year from now. So we are in a, in a bit of a Vilnius could have been just a sort of a photo op. Uh, the reality is that it became much more substantial as we were coming closer to the summit. Uh, essentially, there were four issues on the table from my perspective, and I think uh, NATO ticked the box on three of them, and there is one where we're going to have m- much more debates. First one, uh, there was a big debate about getting Sweden in, uh, uh, because uh, Turkey, until the very last minute, um, uh, hadn't signaled the willingness to ratify the accession of Sweden to NATO, and uh, there was a, a bit of a moment with Sweden in limbo, Finland in, and Sweden uh, at the at the front door. Um, that moved uh, at the very last minute with uh, Erdogan uh, uh, doing a sort of interesting U-turn after 
linking the NATO membership for Sweden to uh, uh, EU rapprochement with uh, uh, for Turkey, uh, decided to let it go and uh, sign the deal uh, with the uh, with the Swedish Prime Minister and the the watch of uh, Jens Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General, and they essentially uh, uh, announced that uh, ratification would come in, uh, in the coming months. Uh, he, he made that clear in the press conference, but that's now expected in the fall. The Hungarians, who are the other um, holdouts, uh, um, suddenly decided that their lack of ratification was a technical problem and that was to, about to be fixed. So we are good on that front, and I don't see any serious turning back uh, uh, on Turkey because that was a part of a package and it's a signed uh, deal. Second big issue was the big NATO military reshuffle with uh, endorsing the plans uh, for the defense of Europe, which is all about reinforcement, readiness, all sort of military stuff that was super important for our military and super classified for the rest of us. But uh, still, there was a, a very good um, outcome, because uh, which is which is visible in the communique, that the decisions were made to support those plans, which will enable SACUR to prepare the European forces at a level that is unprecedented since the Cold War for collective defense. It is all about being able to reinforce the eastern flank of NATO with up to 300,000 soldiers that are supposed to be ready within a month if needed. Uh, uh, and that comes on top of the forward presence. There was a lot of debates throughout the year at NATO headquarters on finding the right uh, balance between forward presence, reinforcement, readiness. And I think that has now been decided in principle and it's all about implementation now. Third thing was uh, defense spending. We are coming close to the sort of 2% uh, tough moment on uh, is everyone doing this? Uh, the, the issue it seems to be uh, that the, uh, uh, was that a few countries were holding out of this process. The, uh, uh, now uh, the decision is clear that 2% is a minimum and that it will be sustained over time. Last but not least was, of course, the Ukraine file. And that one was a tough one, uh, as uh, the, the, the Zelensky was pushing hard with the support of the Bolts and the Poles to get much closer to NATO. Not in NATO in Vilnius, but uh, to get an invitation to, to this. And this is something that uh, we need really to uh, make sure um, uh, uh, is delivered and uh, uh, and was, was a bit of a heated debate with Biden and uh, uh, um, uh, Schultz in particular being quite reluctant to be too specific on that. Ultimately, there was a sort of compromise, which is better than the compromise in Bucharest 2008, uh, which essentially states uh, three things. A, there's going to be a lot of aid for Ukraine that was confirmed by the G7 as well, and, and there were major announcements of additional delivery of weapons. B, NATO-Ukraine uh, Council, which is a, an important step for bringing them closer. And finally, this sort of odd uh, statement of that NATO, that Ukraine will join NATO when allies agreed and when the conditions are met, which I honestly find a bit short uh, and, and lacking clarity, but I'm sure we'll discuss that. Okay, so lots uh, lots to talk about. I think it'll be good maybe to, to kind of delve into these different things one at a time um, and uh, and kind of work out what, what they mean. And we should spend a fair amount of time on, on this whole question about, about Ukraine um, and look has just come back from Ukraine. But be before um, we do that, Alex, you were 
really key part of the campaign within Finland to 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 join NATO, and you were very uh, involved in talking to to Sweden and all, uh, all di- uh, Swedes at all sorts of different steps along the process. Um, how do you think the, the this kind of change of uh, on Sweden and Finland is actually going to change the nature of of NATO? Well, I actually think it's going to make NATO stronger. Uh, I think the starting point is that both Finland and Sweden bring in a lot of capabilities, um, a lot of uh, reliability, software and hardware uh, into NATO. I, I think actually the pathway towards membership was pretty much decided for both countries on the 24th of February last year when Russia attacked Ukraine. I, I just didn't see another option for the two countries to join. The good news was that both countries were very NATO compatible. So just if you take Finland as an example, you know, we're over 2% in defense uh, expenditure of GDP. Uh, we have 62 F-18s. We just bought 64 F-35s. We have one of the most sophisticated uh, air-to-land, land-to-air missile defense systems. We have the JASM system. We have 900,000 men in reserves, including myself. We have 280,000 that we can mobilize at wartime. Uh, We have obligatory military service, which my son is doing at the moment. Um, So if you look, for instance, at the Air Force, um, now that Sweden and Finland join NATO, and you combine the air forces of Norway, Iceland, and Denmark with Finland, Sweden, and so Nordic countries, we're talking 250 fighter jets. So I think we're very much a value added uh, to uh, the alliance. On top of that, I think in Finland and Sweden, NATO gets a safe pair of hands, a little bit like Norway has been over the years. Uh, so I'm quite pleased that that you know both of us joined, and I'm I'm particularly happy that the hurdle of Sweden joining uh, was overcome at the last minute. Look, you just spent the last few days in in Vilnius watching the summit. And before that, you were in Ukraine on an ECFR study trip for a week. What were your main kind of uh, feelings about the kind of atmosphere and and how these tense negotiations that Kemi was talking about uh, were going? Thanks. It's great to be back also here on the podcast. And as a day, one will have to say also starting with that, that it's obviously brilliant that we now have the entire region as members of NATO. I think one can say we haven't been as united in the region uh, since the Kalmar Union that ended in 1523. Uh, uh, so see, from that perspective, it was obviously a great summit. Uh, but talk about Ukraine, my sort of major takeaway from the uh, trip to Kiev was that they expected more. I mean, uh, the overall feeling in Kiev was that this was their time. They really needed sort of a clear signal about membership also because they're exhausted, to put it very uh, clearly. I mean, after 500 uh, days of war, so I mean, the hopes were that there would be a political invitation. I guess you could say that they somehow got it, but uh, also referring to what Camille said, I mean, the wording with regards to membership was not not that clear, to put it diplomatically. And particularly, I thought that the term at the beginning, the expression at the beginning of the important sentence where it says uh, that NATO would be in a position to extend an, an invitation when Ukraine lives up to the various uh, conditions, you could say, okay, what does uh, in a position mean, and particularly also, what are the conditions that we are actually talking about? So, due to that perspective, it could have been better uh, from a Ukrainian sort of point of view. But the overall package, I think, also when one listens to the last sort of uh, short video statement that President Zelensky made, 
I think he can sort of create a narrative which would also sort of be convincing to some of the critics that we met in Kiev. So I think it was quite an interesting moment in terms of the Ukrainian strategy, which has been basically to ask for the the for the uh, for for the impossible and then to complain a lot and attack everyone, and that has worked very well for Ukraine for a long time. But this time seemed to 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 not work particularly well. There's some amazing quotes in the FT, the Financial Times today, from Ben Wallace, the British Defence Minister, who's one of the um, the staunchest supporters of Ukraine from the very beginning of the the conflict. And he basically said, you know, showing a bit of gratitude might not uh, be a terrible idea if you want to uh, persuade countries to carry on giving you enormous amounts of support. You've already had 170 billion worth of, of support from different countries. And then he, he went even further and said that, um, that we're not Amazon. Um, um I wonder whether that this is a sort of turning point where people are basically um, uh, no longer as responsive to to that kind of technique of of kind of naming and shaming and and being very brutal to to, to European countries. Yeah, um, but I think one will also have to understand, and that was also my sort of major takeaway from Kiev, that I mean the exhaustion is just immense. I mean they also, I mean the. Uh, so-called spring offensive, counter-offensive, it's not really sort of happening that fast. You also have, I mean, Kiev or Ukraine sort of being a nation that is truly sort of suffering at the moment. You can see the various opinion polls where almost 80% of Ukrainians have lost either a family member or a loved one. You see that over 20% of children of Ukraine are outside the country. There's a great worry also about not only winning the war, but also winning the peace, because how on earth do you then sort of rebuild uh, Ukraine if you don't have that many people anymore. We heard that, uh, look upon the various predictions, you could have a workforce reduced uh, to a, a third over the next uh, three years. And you could also see the mental health was truly getting on the agenda. You have the sort of great sort of uh, risk of uh, Ukraine turning into a PTSD nation simply because of the huge problems you have with kids, but in particular also with the soldiers coming back. So, so this feeling of exhaustion uh, was simply one where, where the Ukrainians really thought they should push the dossier at the right at this time. Yeah. So, Alex, you were foreign minister at the time of the Bucharest summit and where you had this these kind of big divisions about Ukraine and Georgia with the Bush administration wanting um, us to be forward-leaning and Germany and France in particular holding back and being worried that this would be provocative and, and, a, and a sort of bad idea. And we had a, a kind of slightly different debate this time where uh, a lot of EU member states, particularly the kind of um, Northern European ones, but also the UK and to an extent France, pushing for us to, to be more forward leaning on the on the kind of pathway to membership. And Germany and, and the US um, playing a, a similar role in in some way to the more cautious countries in 2008 and saying, okay, um, you know, on the one hand, um, we don't, you know, we've been very careful not to get into a war with Russia <laughs> and uh, letting Ukraine in would mean that we'd be in a war with Russia. So it's obviously not um, a viable thing until the war is over. And secondly, um, Ukraine needs to become much more democratic and deal with a lot of the, the sort of, as well as the sort of defense reforms that, that it needs to to have substantial political reforms. So the choice of words was a way of, sort of trying to paper over those differences. But how deep do you think those divisions go? And, and how do you, you know, somebody who sat through previous, the dangers of previous attempts to paper over the differences and, and see some of the consequences, because you were also having to deal with the, the war in Georgia, which came out of the the, um, the, the mess at Bucharest. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I guess a starting point is to say that, you know, sitting here uh, in the Finnish archipelago and by the way, watching Finnish warships passing this area, which was leased to the Soviet Union after World War II, it's much easier to give an academic view of what should have been done. I sort of understand the different angles that the member states had to deal with. But point number one is that I do think that we are beyond the point of no return. So everyone should understand that the European security structure has permanently been changed. And that change means that on one side of the new Iron Curtain, you have an isolated Russia. And on the other side, you have more or less 40 European states that want to guarantee each other's security in one way or another. So we should start by admitting that Ukraine, uh, perhaps Georgia, uh, certainly Moldova, and in the long run, the, all the Balkan states will join A, the European Union, and B, NATO. But then we're always in this sort of sequence of events. Okay, when is it going to happen? Are we going to be able to give a deadline, etc., etc.? And going back to 2008, when I was foreign minister, I mean, I, I remember rather vividly, uh, it was the Americans, George W. Bush, Condoleezza Rice, Dan Fried, and others who were pushing very hard uh, for there to be a clearer signal, but the pushback came from France and, and Germany. This time around, okay, you can say that Schultz sat on the fence, but the roles were a little bit reversed. So the Americans didn't want to overpromise. So I guess the second best solution then is uh, for there to be some form of informal or formal security guarantees coming on a bilateral level and then a clear pathway towards NATO membership. Yes, will 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 uh, Ukraine have to sort itself out once the war is over? Are there issues linked to democracy and corruption? Yes, there are. But I think this was pretty much a good of a message as you could give at this particular moment. Ukraine will become a fully-fledged NATO member uh, at one stage. And right now, it does have fairly good guarantees uh, coming from the global West. And, Gemi, do you think that part of the, the play here is about how the war ends? That basically, if you if you have this framework of conditions which the Americans and the Germans were pushing, it encourages the idea that there will have to be some sort of negotiated settlement with NATO membership as, as part of the way that Ukraine comes to terms with its uh, with its security and doesn't feel that it's going to be trapped in a frozen conflict, but probably you know will need to accept um, the de facto loss of some territory. I, I guess th there are two issues there. One is uh, can we bring in a country that has not settled uh, every dispute uh, with uh, its neighbors? And uh, there, there is an interesting precedent, which is West Germany in 1955. They joined with uh, East Germany existing and not recognizing East Germany and still claiming half of Poland and a part of the Soviet Union. So that was a, a sort of interesting uh, precedent to think of uh, when, when discussing Ukraine. So there could be a situation where Ukraine, without having regained full sovereignty about its entire territory, joins NATO I guess after a ceasefire, nobody wants a, a country at war joining NATO in the middle of, a, of, of an open war, but after some sort of a ceasefire, which doesn't mean a full-fledged peace treaty. Then there is a second issue, which is more uh, that the Ukrainians don't like, which is this idea that 
their membership could be part of sort of a bargaining chip in the relationship with Russia. And there, uh, this is probably something that um, um, some in Washington, Berlin, or even Paris have in mind when they, they, they discuss this issue. And can you talk a bit more, One, I don't know who wants to do this, about because there was both the, the, the kind of um, the communique from the NATO summit, but there was also this G7 communique, which is on the security guarantees front. Does someone want to explain that a little bit? Just in, in one minute, because it's a bit of an odd thing. It's it's mentioned as security guarantees. The reality, it's more of an assistance package uh, that, that the, the G7 countries have, have, have described. Uh, and it's a, it's a very interesting, you know, it's good for the Ukrainians because they have a sort of a commitment to, to, to be part of this uh, um, very, you know, that they commit in the long haul, which is something the Ukrainians need. But it is more about assistance, training, uh, uh, than about anything else, than security guarantees per se, uh, even though some make a comparison with the, the military assistance that the U.S. provides to Israel. But of course, it comes with something else. Yeah, I'm very much with Camille on that. And, and if, if I may add, just to sort of loop in the Finnish and the Swedish case, and NATO membership. And I think what people have to understand that when there is a war situation, a lot of the NATO member states are understandably reluctant to overpromise or extend membership. I remember the first few weeks uh, when the war had began, you know, there were some noises coming from Washington saying that, well, perhaps it's not the time for Finland and Sweden to uh, apply because we are in a war situation and we don't want to e- escalate it. And we had those even public uh, voices coming out, you know, Anne-Marie Slaughter and others who were saying that, you know, don't do it when the war is going on. And 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 I, I think that's one of the reasons why it was very difficult to to give anything more than what was given to Ukraine uh, at this particular moment. But I, I, I do agree, of course, with Camille as well, that, you know, what comes from G7 is not really a security guarantee. It's sort of an assurance that we will assist. And you've all um, spent, a, well, particularly uh, Alex and Luca, um, spent a lot of time thinking about about enlargement and and the of different EU and NATO institutions and the two obviously um went alongside each other for for the central and eastern european countries look at you you um uh been sort of de- delving quite deep into the kind of history of enlargement and thinking about the, the copenhagen criteria and all these other things we're we're now having a kind of huge debate about these twin enlargements again there are challenges on both fronts. Ukraine, we uh, in NATO, we talked about the biggest challenge, which is that there's a hot war going on, <laughs> and uh, nobody wants to 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 get into a situation where there where NATO is at war with with Russia. Um, but on the EU front, there are also various um, uh, challenges uh, going on. Um, you know, ranging from decision-making structures and the, absor- the big debates about the EU's absorption capacity, as well as what's happening in in Ukraine. Um, it still seems quite likely that negotiations will start in December and that there'll be a positive report in in October. But what do you? What's your hunch about how these two processes could work together? Um, with the other, with the Central and Eastern European countries, they all got into NATO first because it's much less onerous than uh, absorbing the 80,000 pages of the Eki Communautaire. How do you see these two things complementing each other? Do you think that um, we could start with a, with a kind of EU accession process, but actually that 
that it ends up being less complicated for for Ukraine to join NATO than the EU? Or do you think it's um, it's more uh, going to be the other way around? Or how, or how do you think they're going to be related to each other? Uh, just one point, I mean, going back to what uh, Alex said about Bucharest, it was very clear from the V6 in Kiev that they thought this was in reverse order now, that now the key problem was actually United States of America. They were very sort of positive, in particular about the French, where they said that Emmanuel Macron had uh, undergone a magic transformation, now supporting uh, NATO uh, membership or at least of the political invitation. But to your specific uh, question about uh, the dual enlargement, it was interesting that uh, there was so much focus upon uh, NATO enlargement and also very clear statements by the Ukrainians that it was NATO first. The European Union uh, was kind of uh, looked upon as, as a given thing. It was just a matter of time. Uh, then these negotiations would be opened, and they looked upon it as not sort of a very complicated procedure. Then one will obviously have to say, hang on a minute, this will be a very long drawn negotiations. What do we do about the EU's institutions? What do we do about the EU's various policies? Just take the common cultural policy. So there was, at least in Kiev, this feeling that uh, NATO uh, could go faster, uh, also because you could say when you look upon the European Union, you also have one thing one should never forget, namely Hungary and uh, Viktor Orban and his uh, sort of uh, the problems he would probably cause if you look upon the minority uh, question, I mean, the Hungarian minority in Ukraine. So seeing from that perspective, there was the feeling that it would be NATO first. Yeah, I mean, I guess there is a parallel there also to, you know, the Baltic states, to, to, to Poland, to the Czech Republic and Slovakia. I mean, Luca will remember this better than I will, but there was clearly a preference for security first and Europe second. But there was always a feeling that they would go hand in hand. And, and I think the reaction is quite natural, especially if you are in the middle of war or if your perception of the Russian threat is as strong and real as it was for the Central and Eastern European countries uh, at the time. I think it's very important that we work at these processes parallel and together. I think it's very important that we keep on advancing and most probably at a pace which we have not seen before. For me, European Union enlargement is not anymore a legal technical issue about the 100,000 pages of acquis communautaire. It's an enormous geopolitical and strategic issue for Europe. If we don't get this right I think Europe will have failed miserably. And when we look at this package, don't forget the Western Balkans. So I think we should start mentally prepare to prepare for both NATO enlargement and EU enlargement. And I would say sooner rather than later. That's why I've said, for instance, that one of the most important portfolios in the next European Commission is going to be that of enlargement, because that is real European geopolitics. And I I think that we're going to have to have many more podcasts on this topic as well. And hopefully all of you will come back, particularly um, the, the real EU nerds, um, Alex and Luca, who can tell us about exactly how that's going to work. But we've run out of time for, for this discussion. Uh, we have one thing left to do on this podcast, though, and that is our bookshelf segment. Kemi, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Well, to, to not talk about NATO, but still talk about Ukraine, I wanted to recommend a book uh, in, in French, uh, edited by Michel Duclos, which is called Guerre en Ukraine et Nouvel Ordre du Monde, where for once he's asking uh, tons of experts that are non-Europeans, non-Ukrainians, non-Americans, their views on, on that. And I think it's a very interesting book with uh, uh, quite diverse chapters, a bit uneven, but very, very good thoughts and, and interesting to sort of uh, look at this not from a more traditional angle. 
Fantastic. Thanks, Kemi. What about you, Alex? Well, to be very honest, I have nothing on my bookshelf right now. Everything is on the iPad. In other words, I'm working on the final three chapters of my own book called The New World Disorder. Uh, and that is taking all of my time. But uh, what I will do now that Milan Kundera has unfortunately passed away, I will go and reread The Unbearable Lightness of Being and try to get that feeling into the flow of my writing. Fantastic. What about you, Luca? Well, Kundera is also on my desk, particularly also because one of the ECFR staff were participating on a trip. He, she actually read that book uh, in the shelter in Ukraine. So I thought that I'll basically also read that. But I am reading at the moment The Russia-Ukrainian War, The Return of History by Sergei Prokhi, which I think is a fascinating book, which I can definitely recommend, although I only halfway through. Fantastic. Well, we'll put up links, all the publications we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do head to whatever platform you use to download this episode and subscribe to future episodes. And while you're there, it'd be wonderful if you could give us a positive review and a five-star rating as it will help bring future listeners to the podcast. But for now, from Camille Grand, Alex Stubb, Luca Fries and myself, Mark Leonard. It's goodbye. The researcher for this podcast is Tiffany Sade, and the editor of this episode is Mireya Farrow Sarat. Mm-hmm.